It's time to eat. Get in my belly. Sit down and get ready to consume an abundance of fantasy football knowledge from Ross Tucker and Joe Dolan. On the Fantasy Feast Eating Podcast. Yeah, let's eat, baby. It is the Fantasy Feast Eating Podcast. And if you're looking for a place to make your online wagers, betonline.ag. They're your online sportsbook experts. Just use the promo code PODCAST1. He is Joe Dolan. He is the superstar that you find on Twitter at FG underscore Dolan and one of the part owners of the new website that is rocking the world these last couple weeks, fantasypoints.com. And a reminder, it's totally free to sign up right now during the pandemic. Totally free. Fantasypoints.com. Here's the key, though. If you use the code FEAST, all caps, F-E-A-S-T, all caps, when they do grow to the paid subscription model, you'll get a big-time discount. FEAST at FantasyPoints.com. That is Joe. I'm Ross Tucker, former NFL offensive lineman, five teams, seven years. Now I got a bunch of podcasts all available at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts can be found. And I absolutely love, love, love fantasy football. I love betting on football. I love broadcasting games. I love the Ross Tucker football podcast. I love it all, including this fantasy feast podcast with Joe Dolan. In fact, I love it so much that we got something cool that we can offer you guys for the first time. Starting this month, For the next three months, we're having a best ball 10 draft. Me, Joe, 10 of you guys. Free entries, and the winner takes home the 110 bucks. So you get to draft against me and Joe, and you might win a free 110 bucks if you win. I love best balls. It's best ball 10s. All you have to do to enter is sign up at any of our sponsors at RossTucker.com. Or just go to fantasypoints.com and put in the code FEAST, all caps, forward that to me, Ross at RossTucker.com, and say, Ross, I want to destroy you and Joe in the best ball draft. Bring it on, suckers. Bring it on. You can also, it's probably not too late since it's Thursday, you can probably get Mother's Day flowers delivered for Saturday. If you go to 100flowers.com, use the code FOOTBALL. Or you can probably still get a story at myfrontpagestory.com. The bottom line is, you do any of those things, send it to me, Ross at RossTucker.com, and have in the subject line, Best Ball Draft, and I'll pick 10 of you to go against me and Joe in May. We'll do it again in June. We'll do it again in July. And we'll see who the best fantasy stud is. Good luck, dudes. Good luck. You're going to need it. All right, Joe. Well, let's get right to it. And let's start with the Oakland Raiders and Henry Ruggs. And remember, we're talking about the fantasy prospects for the rookie and the other receivers on the team. So whether it's Dynasty or Best Ball where Joe and I are going to smoke you or whatever, 
you need to know what Joe thinks the implications are of Henry Ruggs being an Oakland Raider for both Henry and for the other Raiders receivers. What do you got on Ruggs and the Raiders, Joe? Got to correct you on one thing, Ross. It's the Las Vegas Raiders. Did I say Oakland? What? Did I say Oakland? Oh, you said Oakland twice. You know what's funny, too? You know what's funny? I am looking at the NFL draft tracker because I want to, like, you know, it has in order where the guys were drafted, and it still says Oakland Raiders, which is kind of funny. I'm on NFL.com, draft tracker, CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, Oakland Raiders. So, anyway, it's still my fault. I'll still take it. But that's uh, that's that's why I think I just you know I just read the prompter, okay, Joe. I just read what they put in front of me. Bleep uh, you, San Diego. Bleep you, Oakland. I was just about to say, yeah, a little anchorman style. So here's the deal with with Henry Ruggs, first receiver drafted uh, in the NFL draft, uh, and, and I think we all kind of we all kind of had a little bit of a chuckle because Mike Mayock and John Gruden and Mark Davis were making Papa Davis Al proud with that one. The fastest guy at the NFL Combine is the first wide receiver off the board, but I certainly don't think this is a effort. We're going deep, Darius Hayward Bay pick. I think Henry Ruggs is way more rounded than that. I think he's going to be somebody that the Raiders can manufacture touches for him. They can they can use him on jet sweeps, uh, shallow crosses, slants. And then, of course, there's going to be posts and go routes and corner routes and all the things that you expect a really fast guy to be able to do. Now, I think a lot of people were worried because Derek Carr is not a very aggressive thrower. So how is that going to me- mesh up? with somebody in Henry Ruggs who is so fast. Well, I I, I really t- do believe that this guy is a more polished route runner than most people give him credit for. I think he is a good deep threat. But um, look, let, let me just go to a quote Mike Mayock gave after the draft. Um, this was, a, this was a, in an interview with The Athletic. And this is what he said. Not only can he run vertical on Henry Ruggs, but we'll also have a bunch of manufactured touches for him, whether they're jet sweeps or bubble screens. Just give him the ability to get the ball in space and use that speed. That's the right approach for Henry Ruggs. Now, I wonder just how many catches he's going to have as a rookie. I don't think this is somebody who's going to catch 70 balls. They also have Tyrell Williams. They have Darren Waller. They have Foster Moreau. They drafted Brian Edwards. They drafted Lynn Bowden. So there is so much going on here. You got Josh Jacobs in the backfield. You've got Jalen Richard in the backfield. I don't know if there's going to be volume for Henry Ruggs, but I think he's going to be a very impactful player uh, for what the Raiders do and what John Gruden calls. He's probably a wide receiver four in redraft leagues. Uh, somebody who hope, who you, you plan on having on your bench, best balls. You know, you hope he has a few big games with that speed. And he's a mid to late first round pick in rookie drafts, just because there are some of the other receivers who landed in more appealing spots for immediate production. What about the other Raiders receivers? Well, I think Brian Edwards is somebody who I'm really interested in watching. The uh, the third-round pick out of South Carolina, he kind of fits that classic X mold. The Raiders loved him. Mayock said he had a second-round grade on him, and they got him in the third. Uh, I think an injury pushed him down the board. So keep an eye on him. He's got a shot to, to – to, uh, Uh, to challenge Tyrell Williams if Tyrell Williams can't stay on the field. But the only other Raider receiver who should be going in the top 10 rounds of any draft, and I'm talking best ball, redraft, whatever, 
is Darren Waller, the tight end, who's probably going around the sixth, seventh round. It's just this to me looks like an offense. Derek Carr is not an overly aggressive thrower. It to me looks like an offense where the ball is going to be spread around. And unfortunately, that's not great for fantasy. Let's go to Denver and talk about Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler. They double dipped. They dipped, Joe, and then they dipped again. So this one is also pretty challenging for fantasy because we have one major question. What do we think of Drew Locke? And I think John Elway made the right decision. The last couple off seasons, he's gone for the Band-Aid. The last couple off seasons, he's gone for Case Keenum. And he's gone for Joe Flacco, somebody who we knew was not going to be a top half of the NFL quarterback, but somebody that John Elway just hoped was going to be a steadying influence, somebody that they could that they could just count on to keep the game on schedule while the defense won them games. And that has not worked out for them. So they gave Drew Locke five starts at the end of last year, and he was pretty impressive. I, I don't think anybody's going to deny that, but he was a second-round pick, and I don't think you can make a determination on a guy's career after five games, good or bad. So that's the big question we have here. He averaged just 31 pass attempts per game. So now I'm looking at the fact that Drew Locke, a young quarterback who was a second-round pick for a reason, by the way, both good and bad. There's a reason he wasn't a fourth-round pick, but there's also a reason he wasn't a first-round pick. And you have to look at the fact that we have a very small sample size on him, and this is a loaded receiving core. Cortland Sutton's your classic X. Jerry Judy is your classic Z, the movement guy, the guy who can get free releases and can win with his route running and his quickness and his savvy. KJ Hamler is your slot guy, and he's somebody who's got the speed to run slot fades. He can run away from guys on shallow crosses and slants. Maybe he gets into the uh, – I thought his route running was a little more nuanced than people might have given him credit for, but he definitely does still need some work. So I'm looking at at a passing game that arguably is more talented than, than the receiving core of the Oakland Raiders who we just talked about because they also have Noah Fant. They drafted Albert Okuebunam from Missouri. They have Melvin Gordon and Philip Lindsay in the backfield. So you have a really deep group of skill position players. The question now becomes the quarterback. And – Cortland Sutton, to me, is probably a fourth, fifth round pick. I think he showed a really good uh, uh, rapport with Drew Locke last year. Drew Locke was an aggressive thrower. I thought he was more aggressive than you might expect a rookie to be. So Drew Locke and Cortland Sutton have that good rapport. I think Jerry Judy's probably a ninth, tenth round pick. I think Hamler is a late round best ball flyer at best. And Noah Fance in that ninth, tenth round as a tight end as well. So Jerry Judy, as productive as he was, as much as we loved him, we probably would have rather for fantasy that he landed in somewhere like the New York Jets, that he landed somewhere like Philadelphia, where there was an ample opportunity to get targets. For for right now, he probably profiles like Henry Ruggs as more of a wide receiver four with upside for redraft. And he's like Henry Ruggs, a mid first round rookie dynasty pick. What about in Dallas, where CeeDee Lamb joins a team that already likes the running game? has Amari Cooper, has Michael Gallup, has Blake Jarwin. So, yeah, so here's the other thing. Lamb is the guy everybody's pegging as landing in the loaded spot, and I totally agree. I mean, Ross, I don't know what your spiral looks like, but you could put up numbers in the, th- throwing the ball in this offense. I, I mean, they Dak Prescott led the NFL in passing last season, 
And now they've just gotten better. Here is the thing that actually surprised me, though, when I was when I was breaking down C.D. Lamb going to Dallas. I didn't realize that both Randall Cobb and Jason Witten are vacating 83 targets. That's 166 targets gone between just those two guys. More targets than I had expected to be available on a team that had Michael Gallup, Amari Cooper, um, and certainly a team that always is going to give the ball to Ezekiel Elliott. Ezekiel Elliott's not getting nine carries a game all of a sudden. He's going to get his 18 to 20. So I, I was actually surprised to see that there are a lot of targets for C.D. Lamb. And, you know, Randall Cobb actually had a pretty good year last year. 55 catches. He averaged 15.1 yards per reception. He was pretty good after the catch. I wouldn't be surprised to see C.D. Lamb put up kind of similar numbers. 55 catches, 800 yards, five or six touchdowns. That would be a useful wide receiver three for fantasy. If we're talking redraft, I actually like C.D. Lamb more than I like Henry Ruggs and more than I like Jerry Judy. And I, I think there's a really good argument to be made that he should be the first rookie wide receiver off the draft board in Dynasty Leagues and the first rookie wide receiver off the draft board in redraft leagues because I was surprised at how many targets the Cowboys actually have available. Moreover, we know Mike McCarthy is the new head coach there. He loved his 11 personnel in Green Bay. You remember the days of Jordy Nelson, Greg Jennings, and Randall Cobb in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers there. He loved that 11 personnel. That is going to be the Cowboys' base attack, just as it was last year. So you slide Blake Jarwin into Jason Witten's role, CeeDee Lamb goes into Randall Cobb's role, and instantly you have a more explosive passing attack. I don't think CeeDee Lamb's going to catch 75 or 80 passes. He probably doesn't need to to be productive for fantasy, though. He could be in that 50 to 60 range and put up good wide receiver three numbers. He's more of an eighth, ninth round redraft pick and probably an early to mid first round rookie dynasty pick. Okay, let's keep it in the same division. And this is one I know that's close to home for you, Joe, and that's Jay and me, really. Jalen Rager with the Philadelphia Eagles, and you can include the incumbents and Marquise Goodwin and even some of the late-round speed guys they took flyers on if you think there's any relevance. Ross, did you ever block Jalen's dad, Monte? You know, I'm sure I did. But I don't remember because I, I, I know I did because I thought it was Monte Rieger. So, like, when they drafted him, the whole time he was in the NFL, the, like, the coaches would be like, all right, we're going against this team. They got Mon like, I think when he was at the Colts, it's like they got Monte Rieger. So, I'm, I'm working for the Eagles the other night, you know, for the draft, and they draft Jalen, his son, and they come to me 20 seconds after the pick and, like, Ross, what do you think? I'm like, well, Jalen Rieger's got a lot of speed, you know, explosive. Because I just always thought that's how he said his dad's last name. And then, like, they went, Fran Duffy or somebody else started talking, and they're in my ear being like, it's Rager. It's pronounced Rager. <laughs> yeah. So how does that make you feel? <laughs> that we're talking about uh, somebody you blocked, you're talking about his kid. <laughs> old, very I'm old. I'm just curious. <laughs> there's a lot of that though now like Antoine Winfield Jr. and Michael yeah. Pittman like there's a lot of that going around these days yeah so um but interestingly that you blocked a defensive tackle in Monte Rager and now his kid's a wide receiver so different type of athletes but good genes for sure uh for for Jalen Rager and now look this was the landing spot for instant impact fantasy production at the at, at wide receiver Ross we probably spent just an hour total alone 
talking about how slow Philadelphia's receivers were last year. And I think this pick makes sense in, in what Philadelphia needed. Philadelphia needed speed. They needed somebody who can line up outside. And I know a lot of Eagle fans were disappointed they didn't take Justin Jefferson, but I actually think Jalen Reger is the type of player they need. And look, he is somebody who, if you look at his production last year, he had just over 600 yards receiving in his final year at TCU. I mean, this poor kid had some of the worst quarterback play I have ever seen putting on his film. I mean, throws are behind him, above him, below him, uh, through him, under him. I mean, any any way that a throw can miss Jalen Rager, it missed last year. And he still managed to make some acrobatic catches. There was actually some elements when I watched him of Odell Beckham in his game in terms of the ability to just jump up and high point and go after the ball. And if you look at his athletic testing at the combine, you kind of can see where those traits come from. He absolutely jumped out of the building at the NFL combine. He had a 97th percentile vertical jump at 42 inches. He had a 98th percentile broad jump. So there is an absolute level of explosion to this kid that is special. He's shorter, but he can fly. He's 5'11". Um, he put on about 10 to 15 pounds for the combine. He got up to, I think, like 206. He probably wants to play at around 195. So he's not going to be a big guy. He's not going to be out there pushing you around. But the Eagles did not draft somebody to push people around. They want somebody who can run. And that's what he can do. The question is, how much does he actually produce as a rookie? Philly obviously hopes to get Deshaun Jackson back this year. So they want him to be playing on the outside. Um, and and still, even though Jalen Rager and Deshaun Jackson ostensibly are going to be their perimeter wide receivers, we know the Eagles, arguably their two best receivers are Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard. So those two guys are going to play a lot. The problem for those two guys last year was they had nobody on the perimeter who could take the top off the defense and free up the middle of the field. So I wonder if Jalen Rager's impact is going to be more in the abstract than it is going to be in the fantasy stat sheet. But when you look at this guy, the ability to run jet sweeps, he's a better route runner than a lot of people give him credit for. You know, sometimes you think these receivers come out of the Big 12 in these wide-ass open offenses and they can't run routes. They're asked to do one thing and that's it. You know, we used to see that all the time back in Baylor back in the day. And I think it was a big problem for somebody like Corey Coleman uh, coming into the NFL. But Jalen Reger lined up all over the formation at TCU, inside, outside. He lined up at X. He lined up at Z. He lined up in the slot. He lined up in the backfield at times. I mean, they put him everywhere. So I think Philadelphia, with a creative coach and Doug Peterson, is going to use him very creatively. Um, I think he's probably the guy who most people are going to draft as the first rookie wide receiver in redraft leagues Seventh and eighth round as an upside wide receiver three, knowing the kind of targets and the kind of uh, speed that Philadelphia needs. Probably, I, I wonder if he's got a lower floor but a higher ceiling than somebody like C.D. Lamb, for instance. Um, I'd personally take him as the top rookie wide receiver in redraft leagues, given that, that combo of talent and opportunity. And he's going to be the top rookie wide receiver drafted in a lot of dynasty leagues as well. I, I I mean, at bare minimum, I would think he goes no later than third among wide receivers behind Judy and Lamb um, in your rookie dynasty drafts. If you get him later than that, he's going to be a steal. How about Justin Jefferson in Minnesota with the Vikings? Really curious about this fit. This one is fascinating. And here's the deal. First and foremost, his career is is going to be compared 
to Jalen Rager's because Philadelphia passed on Justin Jefferson for Jalen Rager. Um, and the reason Philadelphia passed on Justin Jefferson for Jalen Rager is because Philadelphia is a predominant 12 personnel team that lacked perimeter speed. And Justin Jefferson caught 100 out of his 111 passes last year. He caught 111 passes in his final year at LSU, but he caught 100 of them in, from the slot. So this is a guy who was exclusively a slot receiver in his final year at LSU, which was his most productive season at LSU. And that is going to raise some questions because just like Philadelphia, Minnesota was a predominantly 12 personnel team in 2019. Now they have a new offensive coordinator. It's Gary Kubiak, but Gary Kubiak was on the staff last year as an analyst and as an assistant. Kevin Stefanski has moved on to Cleveland. But look at what the Vikings did this offseason, and it's hard to think that they're going to be anything but a predominant 12 personnel team. That means they're going to have two tight ends on the field quite a bit of the time. Listen to this. The Vikings played only 25% of their snaps last season out of 11 personnel. By far the lowest percentage in the NFL. We just got done talking about Philly being a predominant 12 personnel team. Well, Philly used 11 personnel 41% of the time. Minnesota was in 11 25% of the time. In fact, Minnesota was in 11 personnel on just 18% of its pass plays. All these stats are from sharp football stats. So this is a team that used a slot wide receiver very little compared to the NFL average. So, the question becomes this for Justin Jefferson. He must be able, if he's going to produce as a rookie, he must be able to win outside versus press coverage, which we just got talk, done talking about. I know uh, our guy Greg Cosell on this very podcast, or at least on this very podcast network, has expressed some concerns about that. That's why Philadelphia passed on him. So his ability to win outside versus press is a question. Or... The Vikings must use more personnel involving a slot wide receiver. So that is the challenge for Gary Kubiak. Now, just because you have two tight ends on the field doesn't mean you doesn't mean you aren't going to have a slot wide receiver. They could have Irv Smith as the backside X. Meanwhile, you have you have Adam Thielen, Justin Jefferson, and Kyle Rudolph to the other side of the formation. So you can you can have Jefferson working inside. But the, but we've also seen Adam Thielen as somebody who has been at his best, or at, at the very least, very proficient in the slot in his NFL career. So I look at this Vikings team as having a bunch of tight ends and a bunch of slot receivers right now. And while there's plenty of opportunity here, Stefan Diggs is traded. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for Jefferson to catch 65 passes as a rookie. There are a lot of questions about how they're going to deploy him. And that's something where I hope we have some semblance of a normal offseason program so I can look at that and see how they're using this guy. Uh, look, I, maybe Justin Jefferson wins on the outside and everybody looks stupid for passing on him. But I also think there's a scenario in which the predominant 12 personnel approach puts a square Jefferson into a round hole. So this will be Gary Kubiak's challenge. And fortunately, I think Gary Kubiak's one of the most underrated play designers and play callers in the history of the NFL. He's going, I think he's going to try to make Jefferson as, as viable as possible. But, be, but because of those questions, I can't draft him as more than a wide receiver four in redraft leagues. Okay, 
Uh, there's even more round one receivers, Joe, to get to, including Brandon Ayuk, who went to the Niners. And I've been reading Peter King where they said they would have been comfortable taking him at 13. Wow. Yeah. So this is the Niners leading, leaning into what they're good at. Uh, Kyle Shanahan is a manufactured touch maestro. So they're going to manufacture touches for, uh, Debo Samuel, they're going to manufacture touches for Raheem Mostert and Tevin Coleman out of the backfield. They're, they're going to manufacture the occasional touch for Kyle Juszczyk, and they're going to manufacture touches for Brandon Ayuk. Um, his 10.9 yards after catch per reception, according to Pro Football Focus, led all incoming rookies. The 49ers are arguably the best yards after the catch team in the entire NFL. Um, and as you said, apparently Kyle Shanahan had Ayuk ranked above all the other rookie wide receivers in this class. So he's a former running back, so you know what kind of mentality he has. And he's got that bigger frame, a little bit bigger than Debo Samuel. So he's probably going to be your ex. So he might run more vertical routes than Debo Samuel's going to run this season. But the 49ers don't really subscribe to those traditional roles for wide receivers. So he's going to move all around the formation, and Kyle Shanahan is going to get him his touches. Here's the problem. Presuming Ayuk is healthy, he had core muscle surgery, which apparently he aggravated at the combine. He'll likely fill most, if not all, of the role that Emmanuel Sanders left behind. It's smart to point out, though, that Emmanuel Sanders had just 61 targets in 13 games with San Francisco last year. That's 4.7 targets, and, and he had just 3.4 receptions per game. Now, Ayuk's going to get action in the run game, and I think he's going to be used in the return game. But in terms of just pure targets, I think he's far behind George Kittle. And he, I think it's naive to assume he's going to leap ahead of Debo Samuel, who looked like a, a rising star last year and was such a great player in the playoffs for them. So I think he's at best the number three target in a run-heavy offense. And that makes him more of a wide receiver four and five in redraft leagues. But his contributions in the run game and on special teams, if you get points for that, could make him could make him outplay that draft status, but it's just a fit. It's a great fit for the player. I just wonder how much fantasy production is available. So I have a question, just in general, before we get some of these other guys, Joe, and that is, how many rounds of wide receivers would you say are typically fantasy relevant? Like I feel like we're going to do the round one guys. Obviously, I'm going to ask you about the round two guys. Is that where it should stop? Are there some round two guys we shouldn't even consider? Like, is, is there a bar there? Well, I think there are round two guys that probably aren't going to be fantasy relevant this year, for sure. Um, this year, I'm going all the way into the fourth round, though, where I see some guys um, who uh, – and this is this is NFL draft you're talking, not fantasy rounds, correct? NFL draft rounds from a fantasy perspective, yes. Okay, so perfect. So this year, I'm going into the fourth round where I'm looking at guys who I think could have some level of relevance because of opportunity. And I'm talking about somebody like Antonio Gandy-Golden because Washington's wide receiver depth chart is utterly atrocious. I wouldn't be shocked if he's getting snaps in week one, even though he was a fourth-round pick. On the flip side, I'm looking at somebody like KJ Hamler, who is a second round pick, and I'm just not, I'm just wondering where the targets are going to come from for him to to be fantasy relevant. So it's all about opportunity, and then of course you have to combine that with the fact that this year's wide receiver draft class 
is unusually deep. I mean, we're almost a half an hour into this podcast and we haven't even touched on second round wide receivers yet. So uh, it's just an unusually deep draft class. So I would think in a typical year, you look at the first and the second round picks. And then this year, there's guys in the third and even the fourth round where I'm looking at as being potentially viable for fantasy. But of course, this year, like I just got done talking about with Brandon Ayuk, there's some first round picks where I'm not sure where the targets are going to come from. So it's always on a case by case basis. And it's why opportunity and landing spot is so important for fantasy. Let's get to some of these second rounders and we'll start with T. Higgins who's with the Bengals and Joe Burrow. Yeah, so I'm wondering what what, um, T. Higgins' role is going to be. I could see a scenario where he catches 55 passes. I could see a scenario where he catches 30. And I think with the fact that Cincinnati spent the first pick of the second round on him, it looks to me like they view him as potentially their successor to A.J. Green, who, remember, is on the franchise tag this year. So they've got A.J. Green on the perimeter at the X. you got Tyler Boyd in the slot. I guess he's going to be competing for snaps at the Z with John Ross and Auden Tate. Um, I think he's probably got a chance to start right away. And one of the things that makes this intriguing for potential targets for T. Higgins is Cincinnati really does not have a great tight end. Their best receiving tight end on the roster is C.J. Uzoma. So there's really not a whole lot of competition for targets there. But you look at the fact that Green and Boyd are going to get their targets. Mixon and Gio Bernard out of the backfield are going to get their targets. And you wonder... um, how many opportunities Higgins is going to have for redraft. He's a wide receiver, five wide receiver, six, but he's a really intriguing second round rookie pick because the opportunity that could arise in 2021, if they move on from AJ green, my big question about T Higgins is, He did not run at the combine, and I think it became obvious that he didn't think he would test very well. And there are significant questions about his ability to separate at the next level, even though he was a hell of a dynamic player at Clemson. What about Michael Pittman with the Indy? This is your dark horse, and I don't think it's going to be a dark horse for much longer. I think sharp guys are already onto this. Here's your dark horse, though, to lead rookie wide receivers in catches and yards because the opportunity is outrageous. Um, Indianapolis had a terrible receiving court last year. We know what happened when when T.Y. Hilton went down. Um, But they've already come out. The Colts have already come out and said, this guy's our ex. T.Y. Hilton's going to be the Z. Paris Campbell's going to be the slot. And you got Jack Doyle and occasionally Trey Burton playing tight end. It's not a great group of wide receivers. And we've had Frank Reich in the post-draft press conference or the post-draft live stream, whatever the hell you want to call it in these days, saying that he was arguably the best receiver in the entire NFL draft. He's 6'4", he's 223 pounds. He's got Mike Evans-style size. He can't move like Mike Evans. But he can move somebody like, like somebody like, as Greg Cosell has said on your podcast, like Michael Thomas. And now we know Michael Thomas is predominantly a slot or um, does a lot of his work in the slot for the New Orleans Saints. But certainly Michael Pittman has those kind of movement traits. I don't think the Colts are going to be airing it out 40 times a game. They drafted Jonathan Taylor. I think they understand at this stage of Phillip Rivers' career that Phillip Rivers needs a strong run game behind him. But he's got a strong run game and a good offensive line in front of him. And if they're ever playing from behind, I think they'll trust Rivers to throw it 35, 40 times. I wouldn't be shocked if Michael Pittman gets 100 targets as a rookie. And with Phillip Rivers throwing on the ball, 60, 65 catches, 7, 8 touchdowns, not out of the question. 
I love him as a high upside wide receiver for 90 to 100 picks into a redraft league. Um, he's going later than that in best balls right now. He is a complete steal in best balls. I don't expect that to last when people realize we got a good veteran quarterback and all the opportunity that Michael Pittman has. Um, and if you can get him in the second round of rookie dynasty drafts, it is robbery. This guy should be a first round rookie dynasty pick. This is the guy that I have circled, highlighted, underlined, starred his name in the second round who you should be targeting in basically all your drafts because I love the talent. And I, look, good bloodlines. We just talked about it with Jalen Rager. Michael Pittman's dad was obviously uh, a running back on those Super Bowl champion Buccaneers uh, all those years ago. So good bloodlines. He's got opportunity. He's got size. He's got talent. Everything's lining up for Michael Pittman uh, to be successful as a rookie. This is a guy who's going to be on a hell of a lot of my fantasy teams this year. So you hate him, basically. That, uh, that, what just, what just I took from that is you bump. hate him. <laughs> what about, I'm curious about this one. LaVisca Chenault in Jacksonville. This is somebody I just have no clue how they're going to use him. Um, and I think that's why they drafted him, quite frankly, because Jay Gruden's there. He's the new offensive coordinator with Jacksonville. And you'll remember Jay Gruden had Mohamed Sanu in Cincinnati when Mohamed Sanu, you know, would, would, would run gadget plays. He would play wildcat quarterback. He would throw the ball. Um, he would line up his running back. And I think they're going to do all those things, uh, for, uh, with LaVisca Chenault. Unfortunately, according to The Athletic, he's probably the number four wide receiver on their depth chart right now, behind DJ Chark, D.D. Westbrook, and Chris Conley. And we still don't really know what to expect from Gardner Minshew, let's be frank. I know he's got a great mustache, but that doesn't mean he's going to be a great quarterback. Um, I, I think that there's a similar air to Chenault uh, as a prospect as Brandon Ayuk. I think you might've viewed Ayuk as a little bit more explosive, but there's all those things that they can do with Chenault that makes him intriguing. The question is, is he going to get enough targets? Is he going to get enough touches to produce for fantasy as a rookie? That only makes him a late round flyer to me. Um, but for dynasty, Keep in mind that only Chark of those three wide receivers I mentioned is under contract uh, in 2021. So Chenault could be somebody who ascends to a massive role as early as late this season as they look to try him out for a bigger role in 2021. So I think he's just a late round flyer in redraft, but a really interesting second round pick uh, in Dynasty. Denzel Mims with the Jets is another one I really wanted to get your take on. So here is uh, another guy. I mentioned as a late-round guy, Antonio Gandy-Golden, as somebody who has immediate opportunity. We just talked about Michael Pittman having immediate opportunity. Denzel Mims has immediate opportunity because this is not a, this is not a good uh, wide receiver core for the Jets. So Denzel Mims, you, you look, look at the roster and you might think this guy's coming in and he's playing X right away. Like he's going to start at the X. And this was a pick that I think Jet fans were really excited about because they passed on Ruggs and Judy and all those guys at the receiver position to draft Makai Becton in the first round. And Joe, Joe Douglas was able to shrewdly navigate the second round and still get a guy who was getting some late first round buzz at the wide receiver position. So good work by him. And the arguments for Denzel Mims are really easy. He's 6'3", he's about 210 pounds, and he destroyed the NFL Combine. Like, I mean, 4'3", 40, fantastic jump numbers. He posted over 1,000 yards receiving in both his sophomore and senior seasons at Baylor. He lined up all over the formation, including in the slot, though he profiles most as an X. But 
there has been some really intriguing studies, um, and and uh, Rich Rebar of Sharp Football Analysis has done this um, extensively in, in recent years. That guys who do not declare early for the NFL draft at the wide receiver position typically produce less than guys who are early de- declarees. So Mims, he's 23, he's an older prospect. He wasn't an early. Um, he wasn't an early. Uh, de- he didn't declare early for the NFL draft, and his tape showed someone who didn't always play to his size and speed. I know uh, he was a late. He kind of a. He, he kind of snuck up on on our, our, our guys, Greg Cosell and Fran Duffy, who kind of liked him a little bit more the more they watched him. And he was excellent on contested catches, which I think most people view as a positive. But I wonder if that meant he struggled to separate from better corners in college. And that is something that, I, that I'm that i going to look for Denzel Mims early in his career. I think teams are going to press him. And he is in a division where teams can press him. Remember, they're playing in the AFC East. So we're looking at Stephon Gilmore, Tredavious White, Miami's got Xavier Howard and and Byron Jones. This is a really good corner division. So Denzel Mims is going to have his work cut out for him as a, as a rookie. His size, his athletic profile, his versatility, all major positives. His uh, the fact that the the best receivers here, Brashad Perriman, Jamison Crowder, and Josh Dotson, not exactly going to scare teams. It's great news for his immediate value, but some of the questions you have about his tape, the questions you have about his age. I think that makes him a little bit of a shakier prospect and somebody who's a little bit less likely to produce than Michael Pittman as a rookie. So um, I I am just being a little bit hesitant on Mims, though he should be drafted as kind of a wide receiver five in redraft leagues and certainly is a viable second round pick in rookie drafts. Really curious. There's two more guys I want to get to. One is a guy that I talked with with Greg Cosell. On last Friday's Ross Tucker Football Podcast, highly encourage you to listen to it. And by the way, Greg's scouting reports are all over FantasyPoints.com. So yet another reason, other than Joe's award-winning personality, to use the code FEAST, all caps, F-E-A-S-T. Say it to yourself with me. Feast, all caps. Feast, all caps. Feast, all caps. FantasyPoints.com. Fee- I'm, we're going to create a song about this for that the next month. Feast.com. Feast, no. Feast, all caps. Feast, all caps. FantasyPoints.com. Feast, all caps. Feast, all caps. FantasyPoints.com. Anyway, you can get Greg's awesome stuff there, too. Greg, we talked about Chase Claypool on Friday. And by the way, starting tomorrow, we're going to dive into different concepts with Greg every Friday on the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. I think tomorrow we might start with RPOs, which I'm looking forward to. It's going to be Cosell's Concepts. But, Joe, I don't know if you listened to Friday. Greg does not appear to be a big fan of Chase Claypool. I was surprised because I saw the size, I saw the speed, and then his, I guess, wide receiver coach at Notre Dame, maybe Brian Polian, put out a video where he's like the best blocking receiver I've ever seen. Like his video from Notre Dame. Now, maybe it says something if you're putting out a blocking video, (laughs) highlight video for a receiver. (laughs) Maybe that says something. But like as a former offensive lineman, I'm watching this receiver just annihilate dudes all over the field. 
Like, I don't care. Put him at tight end. Like the, he, He's a better blocker than half the NFL tight ends right now because he wants to do it, and he's physical. At any rate, long-winded way of me saying Greg Cosell was not a big fan, but the Steelers' track record with receivers is pretty darn good, but the Steelers still have James Washington, Deontay Johnson, and Juju Smith-Schuster. Who are you trusting? What are you doing here, Joe? Oh, I am I am pulling myself in two different directions here because the only reason my ears are perking up at all because I know how I know I trust Greg Cosell implicitly and he said you know you look at Chase Claypool's six four two hundred thirty eight pound frame if you go to mockdraftable dot com Claypool's athletic profile his spider graph is basically a complete circle the guy's a freak I mean his his size his wingspan his jumps his 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 sprints. I mean, these are all high percentile, like he's a ridiculous athlete, but he didn't play that way on tape. And that's a concern for me. Nearly half of his career receiving yards and 13 of his 19 receiving touchdowns came in his senior season at Notre Dame. And I think the skeptics view him as kind of a fringy wide receiver, tight end hybrid, not fast, not doesn't play fast enough to be a wide receiver, isn't strong enough to be a tight end. That's the thing that concerns me. And then, as you mentioned, in terms of rookie value, you have a loaded team right now. James Washington, who I think this pick is probably more an indictment on James Washington than anything else. Um, There's a lot of reports going around that the Steelers can move on from Juju Smith-Schuster this offseason. So maybe they view him as the successor to Juju Smith-Schuster in the slot as a big slot receiver, which is fascinating. If If he is that small tight end, could he take over that slot role? But if you're looking at him as kind of a small move tight end, well, they also have Eric Ebron and Vance McDonald here. So my question is, where are the targets coming from? So we know Ben Roethlisberger is an injury risk at this stage. Um, for to, to play as a rookie, he's going to have to earn snaps over James Washington. I think that's the guy that he's got to play over. But I don't think he's getting them from Juju, and I definitely don't think he's getting them from Deontay Johnson, uh, who who I am really high on this year. So I think he's a very shaky redraft pick. But I could see someone very high on the fact that the Steelers drafted him and very high on his athletic measurables taking an early second-round rookie pick on him. I just don't know if I'm going to be that guy. Last one, I believe, Van Jefferson. I'm not sure people thought he would sneak into the second round. But he did with the L.A. Rams. So this one is really fascinating because Van Jefferson might be the prospect who is the big kind of differentiation between the tape guys and the analytics guys. Because on tape, anybody who grinds tape, you talk to, uh, obviously, Greg, you talk to somebody like Daniel Jeremiah or Dane Brugler, and the guys who watched Van Jefferson loved him. You know, he's a route technician. He grew up around the game. He's the son of Sean Jefferson, the former NFL receiver. He's currently the Jets wide receiver coach. Um, But he never produced in college. He spent three years at Ole Miss uh, before transferring, and then he played two seasons for Florida. And his best season in college was uh, catching 49 passes for 657 yards and six touchdowns. That was his final year at Florida, and that was his best season. He didn't test well uh, t- test at the NFL Combine because of a broken broken foot. I don't think his athletic I don't think his tape shows that next level athlete. You know, in a way, I actually compared him to Robert Woods, which makes it fascinating that he landed with the Rams. I'm sure they kind of saw him that way. Um, 
But then the question becomes, how do they plan to use him? Because the Rams were a team that late in the season shifted to a predominant 12 personnel team. Another one of those 12 personnel teams we're talking about. Getting uh, Tyler Higby involved. And though Gerald Everett was in and out of the lineup with injuries, they got Munt out there. I know you're a big Munt fan, Ross. So they got him <laughs> out there. Um, and they drafted another tight end in this draft in Bryson Hopkins. So right now we have Van Jefferson behind uh, uh, Robert Woods behind Cooper Cup, and uh, there has been some reporting that suggests the Rams view Van Jefferson as kind of a hybrid between Robert Woods and Cooper Cup, which is fascinating. They've been talking up Josh Reynolds all offseason, and then you've got Tyler Higby, you've got Gerald Everett, and you've got Bryson Hopkins at the tight end position. The question is, what is Van Jefferson's role? And I, I don't think, I frankly, I'm not sure he's even draftable in redraft. Maybe a late-round guy in best ball and a late second-round guy in rookie pit drafts because I'm just not sure what his role is going to be. But it is very telling that tape watchers absolutely love this guy and then the Rams spend a second-round pick on him. Is there anybody else, Joe, you can think of we touched on Brian Edwards. There's Lynn Bowden is interesting. Antonio Gibson is interesting because of their versatility. Any other receiver that has to be mentioned? I know we're going longer than we normally do, but yeah. this is going to be the complete guide to wide receiver, rookie wide receivers, fantasy prospects. Any guys we missed, or is there like a Gandy Golden, or? Is it all, or is there something to mention about uh, Lynn Bowden and Antonio Gibson? So here's the thing about Bowden and Gibson: their teams are listing them as running backs. So I actually broke them down for FantasyPoints.com in my running back breakdown. So I, I'm not really sure what, where they're going to be listed in terms of availability for some of your other leagues, but if they get wide receiver availability, I think they're more mid to late round picks. Um, uh, Antonio Gibson, I know right now in best ball tens is a wide receiver. I am viewing him as a running back though with Washington. So that's why he, they're not, they're not in this analysis right here. Same with Lynn Bowden, Bowden. I'm not really sure how you say it, but he's going to be moved all over for the Raiders. I'm just not sure it's going to be in a fantasy relevant role. Two more guys who I think deserve some mention are Devin Duvernay, the third round pick for Baltimore from Texas. Uh, he had some tr he, track speed, um, I think our guy Greg Cosell compared him to Golden Tate, just really good after the catch. Um, I think he's immediately going to challenge Willie Sneed for the slot role for Baltimore. I'm just not sure how productive he's going to be. Um, I just don't know how productive he's going to be in that run-heavy offense. And one guy who was a fifth-round pick who I'm just interested in strictly because of his landing spot is John Hightower from Boise State. He was a fifth-round pick, but he goes to Philadelphia. 6'1", ran a 4-4-3 at the Combine, kind of reminded me of Robbie Anderson, a smooth player, and Philadelphia needs that perimeter speed. This is somebody who's going to have a shot to contribute immediately. Remember, Deshaun Jackson is back, but... I mean, he played essentially one game last year. I wouldn't be shocked if somebody like John Hightower, the fifth-round pick, is getting significant snaps as a rookie for Philadelphia. Gosh, Joe, you are awesome, man. You really are. Like That was incredible. What an unbelievable 45, 50-plus minutes breaking down every relevant fantasy rookie wide receiver. I love it. The good news is, by the way, I know buddy, guys like my buddy Nick Costos – on yesterday's Even Money podcast, he thinks Jerry Judy has good odds for Offensive Rookie of the Year. 
So you can go over to Bet Online and you can place a bet on Jerry Judy for the offensive rookie of the year if you want. Or if you want to bet on something this weekend, this is pretty cool too. UFC, it's going down. And at the end of this podcast, you might have heard it on heard it on some of our other shows. Chael Sonnen and our guy Dave Mason from Bet Online, they're going to talk about UFC 249 Saturday night, and you can listen to it at the end of this show. If you're into that, it's only in a couple minutes. You can listen to it if you're not. That's fine. Don't Bet Online, your online wagering solution. Just use the promo code Podcast One. Co-sells concepts tomorrow. Get fired up. Get ready to learn, people. Learn. Better yourself. I'm stuffed. We're done. Really stuffed today. Thanks for listening to the Fantasy Feast podcast. Make sure to also subscribe to the Ross Tucker football podcast, Even Money, Business of Sports, and the College Draft. All available at Apple Podcasts, RossTucker.com, or wherever podcasts can be found. All right, now we are joined by Dave Mason from BetOnline.ag. Dave, we can finally talk about some fights. UFC 249 is going to happen. Let's just start with that, man. Is it, does it feel good to get back to some normalcy? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as I've told you before, UFC is one of my favorite sports, so uh makes it even better. Been waiting a long time here for some real sports action, and it's a great card, too. And three cards within a week, it's looking like, so uh, we're excited. Hey, Dana was just talking about adding a fourth. I mean, if he adds a fourth, not only is that four cards to look forward to, but on an average of 10 fights per card, I mean, if you're a fight fan, you got a busy month ahead. Oh, absolutely. I, I can't wait. Finally put my Netflix machine on the back burner and watch some sports again I'm, i can't wait all right well let's start uh let's start with the main event i mean it's going to be for an interim world title fight you're talking about justin gaethje versus uh versus tony ferguson before we get in the odds of it this fight is different now that it's may 9th as opposed to april 18th in this way justin gaethje accepted that fight on very short notice and even though he was training and kind of keeping his weight down it's totally different to have a signed contract and really be pushing and motivated the mere fact that they've given him three extra weeks to train that does change how this fight looks do you agree no 100 percent. you know those short notice fights are always uh, a tough one for you fighters obviously and we recognize it in the odds and the results when the habib fight got canceled and he had to pull out and and they replaced him with justin gagey i wasn't too disappointed so i sure i want to see habib versus el kukui no doubt, but I mean, you know, from a fan standpoint, just a just a good old slugfest. It's not going to get any better than this one, man. I, I I can't wait. You know, we had Tony Ferguson at minus one seventy two favorite. He's what won won twelve fights in a row. I, and Justin Gagey off a three fight win streak. He's a plus one forty seven underdog. So I I can't wait for this one. Just as a fan of the sport and a fan of competition, that it doesn't get any better than this. There's no way this fight can be boring. It's impossible. Dana White just did an interview. He was promoting this fight, and he he said, I guarantee you this will be the most violent fight you've ever <laughs> seen. And that was a very interesting word. I've, I've never heard him use that word. So I was sitting back and pondering, what exactly does that mean, and do I agree? And you know what? I think he used the right word. This is going to be chaos and violence in a controlled area for up to 25 minutes. No, absolutely. I mean, you look at Ferguson with those elbows. I mean, his pointy elbows and his nonstop pace moving forward. 
than Justin Gagey and hit that, that how he hits so hard and he goes in there and balls to the wall. I mean, it's not going to be any kind of strategy feeling each other out stuff. These guys are going to be going at it, swinging for the fences. Both guys are going to be bleeding. The, the mat's going to be soaked with blood. I, I can't wait. All right, so give me a line on it. What, how, what's Bet Online thinking about this fight? I imagine they're favoring Tony. Yeah, Tony's minus 172. The take back on Gagey is plus 147. That's all? Uh, that's all? Yeah. Negative, negative one? That's close. That's close it's, odds. Yeah. I mean, it's gone down and up a little bit. It was, you know, down to about minus 150 the other day. So it's going up and down. You know, Gagey, he just hits so darn hard, and he's on a three-fight win streak. He's hot. You know, it's it's going to be one of those fights. I think it comes down to cardio and Tony. Uh, and Tony gets hit too. He, he's he's awesome. He's one of my favorite fighters. But he, he has been known to get take take a couple hits to the face. So if Gagey can catch him, you, you don't know. You know, he's been knocked down plenty, Ferguson. So, I, but I think Ferguson takes it in deep water with that relentless cardio, and that that's what I'm counting on for a you know fourth fifth round stoppage. All right, so we got we got another title fight. The current champion, Triple C. Henry Cejudo is going to take on former champion Dominic Cruz. You go first on this one, but then you got to let me give you my opinion because I think I have an interesting take. Take it away. Oh, good. Um, you know, Dominic Cruz may be the best fighter at that weight class ever, arguably. Henry Cejudo, man, the way he's poured it on the last couple of years, he's just become, you know, he's always had that potential being the a former Olympic gold medalist, and uh, he, he's really put it together the last year and a half, two years since he beat uh, Demetrius Johnson. Oh, boy. I mean, I, I have to – Sejudo is a minus 225 favorite, and I'm going to be on him. I mean, it, it, Cruz, it's, he's been off – his last win was almost four years ago. I mean, that's just such a long time. And, he, you know, he came back. He fought those three fights. He looked okay, but he didn't look like it, the dominant Dominic Cruz of, of old. So, you know, that that four years off is just, is just too much for me. I'm, I'm going to be on Sejudo, and who's peaking, and he looks better than ever. All right, Dave, I am not ready to part with my money. I'm not even ready to publicly predict an upset here. However, this has all the makings of an upset. This is a stylistic problem to the highest of levels for Henry. Look, you can tell me on paper that Henry's a better wrestler, and you would be right. He was the Olympic champion. He was the greatest wrestler alive. But you can't show me a whole bunch of his fights where he's ever effectively used his wrestling. I only bring that up because with Dominic's footwork and Dominic's ability to control range, to peck away at you, in many ways, I think you could agree with me that wrestling is not going to be the solidifier in this contest. So if wrestling's not, that only leaves the striking, and Dominic Cruz has only been outstruck one time in his life, and it was a huge shock. So if we're to use history, use the body of work of these two athletes, and agree that there's largely going to be stand-up, that's Dominic's world. In my opinion, this is all the makings for potential upset. That's all I'm saying. I love it. Opposite sides. Let's do it. Okay, so I don't know if you guys are taking action on this one, but I'm going to assume you are because it's Engano versus Rosenstrike. That was scheduled to be a main event, so I'm guessing that Bet Online is looking at it. Am I right? Uh, we have all odds on all the fights. Absolutely. Nagano's currently minus 285 favorite. Take back on Rosenstrike is plus 240. And holy God, is, is this going to be <laughs> what a matchup this is? I mean, talk about heavy hitters to 
just giants of men, two big heavyweights. I can't wait for this one. Uh, you know, Rosenstrike, he, he's got a great chin. I don't think anybody hits hard in Naganyu, but Rosenstrike has a heavy chin. And so uh, yeah, there's some live dog action there, plus 240. Sometimes it just comes down to who lands that big shot first. Uh, you know, in Naganyu, I, I sometimes question his cardio. So if, if he swings himself, punches himself out early and, and it's going into two Second or third round, uh, I, I favor Rosenstrike there. I think he can keep moving forward like he did his last fight. And see, that's interesting you bring that up because this is another fight. Because of the change of date, it changes the complexity of the fight. This was originally going to be a main event, which means it was originally going to be yep. a potential of 25 minutes. Now that it's down the card, it's got a maximum of 15 minutes. And to your point about Engano, who does have a little bit of cardio issues, I mean, that's just a reality when you're packing that much muscle around, in many ways, Ways, the lower placement favors Engano. Absolutely. I mean, the five-round fight, absolutely. I mean, I don't think those guys can make it in the fourth or fifth round, but the three-round fight absolutely uh, favors Nagano more than it would in a five-round fight. Either way, he's the, he's the uh, he's a legitimate favorite, but I just like that I like that live dog money on plus 240 on Rosenstrike. All right, let's talk about the rematch. Uh, Anthony Pettis, Showtime, taking on the Cowboy. Mm-hmm. Donald Cerrone, is, is, is this too much too soon for Cowboy? I think it is. I mean, especially with his comments that came out the other day where he wasn't mentally into the the, the McGregor fight a few months ago. He didn't look good, and, and he didn't fight well, and, and he confirmed it this week. I don't know if that was just him talking whatever, but he, he's fought so much, man. I mean, there, there's no tougher guy in the sport, but he's just coming to an end, I think. You know, you see it with these guys sometimes, and, and he, he he's just been on a – he hasn't won much lately, and uh, – Pettis, you know, I've never been a big Pettis fan, but he he's impressed me the last the last few fights. He's one of those guys who I think had always had all the talent, but I kind of questioned, you know, his, his mindset and, and heart sometimes. And again, heart for a fighter because I don't have half the heart this guy does. But he's 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 looked a lot 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 tougher, and he's been in some real wars lately. So I just think Pettis deserves favor. He's minus one thirty six right now. Take back on Cerrone. He's plus one sixteen, but. I don't know. Cerrone's just has not looked good the last few fights. Tough as hell, sure, but but he's he's going down. I think. I went back and I rewatched that first fight, Dave. It wasn't competitive in the least. Pettis came out. He hit him with what they called a kick to the body, but it kind of, it almost looked like a knee, like more of the knee hit. I mean, it's just a really hard shot that would stop a fight. And Cerrone was too tough to stop. He tried to push through it, but it was all downhill from there. Pettis kind of peppered him with a couple of kicks. Uh, punches rather came back to that exact same shot that exact same kick and the exact same yep. part of the body i had a weird takeaway even though i can tell you as a guy that just rewatched this that was not close that was not competitive it was still one of those nights where you look at pettis and you go good job congratulations but i need to see that again you made that look so easy that i'm not sure that my eyes are telling me that tr- i need to see that fight again is that too big of a stretch for me no, I mean, let, let's run it back, right? You know, it, it, both are definitely past their prime. And that was right before I think Pettis won the belt, I believe. So that's right when he was at, at his peak. But yeah, let's let's run it back. Two guys are legends and, and um, let, let's run it back. You know, I, I just think Pettis has a little bit more in him right now. And Cerrone is, is just, he's been getting beat up too. You know, he's he's been taking a beating too. And I don't like to see that in these fighters once they start losing that chin and start going down a lot. 
No, I hear you. Look, as a fighter, you're never done with this sport, but you will wake up one day and this sport is done with you. And I, I don't know that either one of these guys is in that spot. I don't wish that for him, but that is a reality that might, might unfold in front of us on May 9th. Absolutely. We'll find out, and it's a great card. I can't wait. Dave, I appreciate you, buddy. I miss talking to you. I'm glad we finally have something to catch up on. Thank you, pal. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Take care.